can turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16, is where we'll be this morning. Uh, this semester, we're going to study the book of Acts. So if you want to get ahead a little bit, next, uh, next week we'll start our study of the book of Acts. Wonderful uh, recount of the birth of the church and the explosion of the church, which I find uh, just retelling that story and rethinking through that story really challenging us to think about what more could happen in our church and in our lives. So, if you want to get on it, Acts chapter 1 is where we will be next week in our study for the semester. Now, I've heard uh, many times in many places, in uh, speeches and sermons, uh, motivational talks, blogs, that sort of thing, uh, this statement that the Chinese word for crisis is the formation of two characters, meaning danger and opportunity. I've heard that over and over and over again. Crisis means danger plus opportunity. And it fits so well in a motivational speech that I will tell you, I am a skeptic. I'm I'm, I'm pretty skeptical, kind of cynical. And I thought, you know, I I just got to look that up. That just fits too well. It's almost too good to be true. And so this is what I discovered. What I discovered is that idea was first put forward in a, a missionary letter, 1938. And somewhere along the line, it was picked up and popularized by John F. Kennedy. He used it in two speeches, one in 1959, one in 1960. Richard Nixon picked up the idea, and he used it in a speech. Condoleezza Rice used it multiple times. She thought that was a really clever idea. It was one of Al Gore's favorite lines in his speeches. But guess what? It's not true. Okay? It's not true. This is what I discovered. Chinese word for crisis is the combination of two characters, but the two characters mean danger and a critical point. In other words, there is a a critical point or an intersection of life's circumstances that create danger. That's a crisis. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? So I pushed a little bit further, and I discovered there's another Chinese word for opportunity that also is the combination of two characters, and it means this. It means meeting at a critical point. In other words, there is a a critical point, an intersection, again, of circumstances or lives that creates a moment. It creates an opportunity. And as I was reading through the life of Elijah again this last week, I thought, you know, Elijah is a man of opportunity. Everywhere that Elijah's life intersects someone else's life, an opportunity is created. There is a, a critical point in that meeting. It's an opportunity for Elijah, or it's an opportunity for others around him to take steps of faith, to move forward in their lives. A decision must be made. And so what I want us to think about this morning is when God creates those critical points in our life, those moments of intersection, he creates opportunity. Doors open up for us to step through and follow him boldly, confidently, courageously, Do we move with God or do we hesitate? Do we move forward and follow or do we pull back when God gives us opportunities? So I want us to look together at the life of Elijah and these moments or these opportunities that were created through his life and kind of see how they apply to our lives as well. So I want you to read with me beginning in chapter 16, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16 and verse 29. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 
came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Naboth, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went to serve Baal and he worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which is built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. A little bit of background. Elijah lived in the ninth century. He was a prophet in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. This is the time period in which the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Elijah lived and prophesied mostly in the northern kingdom. He prophesied during the days of King Ahab, uh, among other kings, but mostly during the days of Ahab. Ahab reigned for uh, about 22 years, and Ahab was an evil king. He was also a successful king in many respects. He had uh, military strength that grew under his reign. There was economic prosperity, but there was also incredible idolatry and immorality. And one of the ways he gained military strength and economic strength was through an alliance with the Sidonians through Jezebel, through Jezebel's family. Jezebel was his wife, and her name means, where is Zebul, or where is the prince? This is a title that was given to Baal. Jezebel was a, a fervent worshiper of Baal. She's the daughter of Ethbaal. His name means with Baal or alongside of Baal. He was the king of Sidon. He was a Phoenician. And that alliance created military strength and economic strength. Basically, it gave each of these countries a way to the Mediterranean and also access to the major trade routes. It cut off the Syrians from the Mediterranean and the trade routes. As a result, there was war between Syria and Israel almost all the days of King Ahab. Ethbaal and Jezebel were wicked people. They worshipped and served Baal. Baal's name means master or lord. It's, it's just a title. The full name was Baal Shamaim, meaning the lord or master of the heavens. He was said to ride on the clouds. He's always pictured as having a rod or a staff, a, a stick, a bludgeon in one hand and a lightning bolt in the other because he was said to control the rains and consequently to control fertility on the earth. And so the worship of Baal included fertility rituals. According to Canaanite mythology, Baal would die every year and be resurrected. Every year they would go through the cycle of planting and the rains would come, and Baal would be sending fertility on the earth to man and to animal and to the ground. And then every year after the crops were harvested, it said that, it was said that Baal would die, and he would go down to the underworld, and he would be held captive by the god of death, Moat. And then every year, people's responsibility was to praise him and worship him in such a way that they could wake him up out of death, free him from captivity to Moat. He would be resurrected again, and he would send fertility to the earth again. And the way that they resurrected Baal year after year is they performed various immoral sexual rituals to entice Baal to do the same with his consort Asherah and consequently the earth would be fertile again. Ahab was an evil king. Ahab plunged Israel into the worship of Baal and normally what happened when a new god would come in is that he would be added alongside of the old gods. But in Ahab's case, he promoted the worship of all gods except one, that is Yahweh. And he did his best to stamp out the worship of Yahweh. 
Read with me 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 25. It says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. All of the altars of the Lord were torn down, and the prophets of the Lord were put to death, and the worship of Baal reigned. Men and women, Elijah lived in really dark times. We live in darkening times, don't we? And it's easy for the people of God to become discouraged and to forget that God is still on his throne and God is still paying attention and God is still active. God is aware and God cares. But in darkening times, it's easy for us to forget that and to feel like we are defeated and to forget as well that when things get dark, God's people have an opportunity to be light in the world. The darker it is, the brighter our light shines, and we need to take that moment or take that opportunity. I want to look at a few of those opportunities, beginning in chapter 17, verse 1. Read with me. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. And no rain. We know that that process went on for three years. No rain. Who controls the rain? Well, Baal is supposed to control the rain. In other words, Elijah is kicking Baal in the teeth. Let's start this confrontation off right. There will be no rain. So everything dries up. God takes Elijah and he puts him out east of the Jordan near a a small creek and he lives there and he's fed uh, meat and bread by ravens and he drinks the water and he's there for quite a peri- long period of time and then it all dries up and so God says to him, you know what, I'm going to take you back to the very heart of the worship of Baal, go into the land of Sidon. And there in Sidon where Baal is worshipped and where the drought is as it's, at its most severe, there in the home place of Jezebel and Ethbaal, there I will provide for you. And I'll provide for you in a miraculous way demonstrating that I am the only God And I'm the only one who can provide. Read with me chapter 17 and verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil left in the jar. Behold, I'm gathering sticks so that I may go in and prepare for me and my son so that we may eat it and then we will die. Then Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me. Afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. Elijah's life intersected the life of this widow, and she had an opportunity to trust. Imagine all the people in the entire nation that God could have sent Elijah to. He could have sent Elijah to a wealthy family, a well-provided-for family. But how easy would that be? Instead, he sends Elijah to a widow who apparently has no inheritance and her child is too young to provide for her. She is literally at her very last meal. She's going to bake the last cake. They will eat it. They will move to the corner and they will die. 
And Elijah comes to her and he says, no, feed me first. <laughs> wow. What, what, a, what a step of faith. Have you ever been challenged by God to take a step of faith? Probably not like that, right? Where literally you are putting your life on the line and the life of your child on the line. And if you obey God, you might die. But Elijah says, trust. Notice, again, earlier in 17, verse 9, he commands Elijah to go to Zarephath, and he says, I have already commanded the widow there to provide for you. God had spoken to her, and so she took a step of faith. God ever challenged you to take a step of faith? Trust him. Trust him. Maybe it's not putting your life on the line. Maybe it's just a small thing. He says, when you get up in the morning, I want you to come to me first. I know you have so many things you must do today. Your day is so busy. You probably feel as if you do not have time to be with me. Trust me. Be with me first. Or your paycheck comes and God says, give. Give to me first. God ever challenged you to give him your job. Trust him with your job. Trust him with your career. Trust him with your relationships. Give all these things. And you don't know what the outcome will be exactly, but he says, trust me. When he opens up that door of opportunity, do you walk boldly through and say, yes, God, I know I can take you at your word. I believe. I trust. How do you respond? I did a little more digging. I discovered that the English word for opportunity actually comes from a Latin phrase. It's abortum veniens, which we all know means, I'm just kidding, I don't know what it means either. I just, I looked it up. It means coming toward a port. Means coming toward a port. So think this. The opportunity means your ship has come in, right? Coming into the port, the wind is blowing favorably, the ship is moving into the port, its goods can be unloaded. Your ship has come in, that's an opportunity, right? Blessing has come. And how did this widow feel? When she made the cake for Elijah, she took the step of faith. He eats, she turns back to the bowl, and it's full. And there's oil, and there's more. And she makes more the next day, and the bowl is full, and the next day, and it's full. Day after day after day after day, she must have just thought, wow, what, what amazing provision from God. What blessing. I am so glad I said yes to God. But then the story turns. Her son dies, and in her thinking, in her worldview, her son has died because the prophet has come. Because when your life intersects the life of a prophet, it's possible that your sins will be revealed because of your proximity to the prophet. And she says to Elijah, because you have come, my sins are now made known to your God and you are not a blessing. You're a curse. My son is dead. The one thing in life that was most valuable to me. So Elijah cries out to God and he, he takes the boy and he lays down upon the boy and he prays, God, bring life back to his body. And he lays down again three times and he prays, God, bring life back to the boy. And the boy is revived. He's resurrected. And notice what the mom says. Chapter 17, verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Now I know that what God says is true. Now I know that your God, Yahweh, is the one true God, and he can, in fact, be trusted. So when God begins to open up opportunities, 
and he will this semester, for you to take risky steps of faith, will you say yes? First opportunity at this first intersection is an opportunity to trust. Second opportunity is an opportunity to worship. Uh, Elijah's life intersects that of Ahab and the nation of Israel. Chapter 18, verse 1. It says, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Now go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? But Elijah said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. This is not a confrontation between Baal and God because Baal does not exist. This is a confrontation between God and his people that Elijah's life is creating. This opportunity for God's people to say no to all their false gods in whom they have trusted and to turn instead and say yes to the Lord their God. Verse 20. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is the God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people were unwilling to even answer him a word. This says literally something like this. How long will you limp around on two crutches? You want to keep doors open with Yahweh, the Lord. But just in case he doesn't come through, you want to keep the doors open with Baal and Asherah. And so you are limping around between two decisions. And Elijah's pressing the point and he's saying, choose, choose. There's an opportunity in front of you to choose the one true God. Choose. And they say nothing. Elijah really is a man of crisis, isn't he? Because he's a man who creates danger. He's a man who forces the issue. You're going to have to make a choice. Reminds me of uh, Joshua's life. Joshua chapter 24, he said this. Choose, Israel, choose for yourselves. Choose today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we have already chosen. We will serve the Lord. Wow, that is bold. God wants us to be people like that, that create that opportunity for others to choose. Choose who you will worship. Elijah presses the point with them. Verse 22. Elijah said to the people, Now I am alone and left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up Place it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will not put fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is the God. Literally, he is the God. And all the people said, that sounds like a good idea. 
Okay. Elijah forces the confrontation. Elijah's life is always doing this. Elijah's name literally means Yahweh is my God. And he challenges the people to make a decision. But I want you to notice that what's interesting about this whole confrontation is that, in a sense, Elijah gives away the advantage. He's the last prophet. He's the only prophet who's standing here on top of Mount Carmel, and he is faced with 850 prophets. It's 850 to 1. Kind of reminds me of the days of Gideon, right? Where God said, no, that's too many. No, that's too many. That's too many. Because if you went with all that huge army, you would say that you accomplished the victory. So no, we're going we're gonna to pare it down. So here's Elijah. He's given up the advantage. It's 850 to 1. He's pursuing the confrontation on top of Mount Carmel, which was supposed to be the home of Baal. Hey, this is where Baal is at his most powerful. This is home court advantage. And he says to him, you go first. There's so many of you, you can prepare the oxen so quickly and offer your sacrifice and Baal will speak and then we'll be done. And I won't even have to call the name of the Lord. You you go first. You go first. Verse 25. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many. And call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Four or five hours. They're crying out, and they're saying, O Baal, O Lord, O Master, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they leaped about the altar which they had made. It came about at noon which is the zenith of Baal's power. This is where the sun is at its highest and Baal was thought to be at his greatest strength. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and he said, call out with a loud voice for he is God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and he needs to be awakened. <laughs> and he's just, he's just needling them, right? Because remember what is their, their fear is that well, perhaps he did die, and this time he is held by Mot, the god of death, and he can't break free, and he can't wake up, and he won't be revived. And Elijah says, well, yell louder, right? Yell louder, or perhaps he has gone aside, meaning perhaps he has entered into the restroom, right? And you need to rattle the door a little bit. Shake the door, wake him up, or get him out of the restroom. Get him to respond to you. And he didn't speak. So they yelled louder. They cried with a loud voice and they cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. It was silent. Can you imagine that scene? It says they, they raved. They screamed and they yelled and they jumped around and they took out their knives and began cutting all over their bodies. And they're soaked with blood and blood is dripping onto the ground and they have gone at this for eight or nine or ten hours and they absolutely collapse and then it is silent. Men and women, when God begins to silence your gods begins to crush your gods, how do you respond? The things in which you have put your greatest trust, 
And God proves that they are nothing. Do you try to revive them? Do you rant and rave and scream and shout? What do you think? Were these prophets of Baal sincere? Were they sincere? Did they really believe? I, I think so. Right? I, I, it's hard to imagine them jumping around like this and cutting themselves and doing all this thing. If they didn't really believe in Baal, they, they were believers in Baal. Their sincerity was profound, but their sincerity did not save them because their God was a lie. Right? Sincerity does not save men and women. Only the true God can save. I want you to imagine for a moment after the sermon, you come up to me and say, you know, Brian, that wasn't bad. You're, you know, you seem to be a, a pretty good preacher. I'm kind of shopping around churches. You're, you're a decent preacher. You're pretty good. And I imagine from the way that you preach that you probably could fly a plane as well. I can't, by the way. But you see, you know, you can probably do anything. You're so good at preaching. And, I, you know, even though I haven't flown a plane, what I lack in skill, I make up for in confidence. So I say, sure. I mean, I've said yes to crazier things. Sure, I'll fly you. I'll fly you. You want to get in a plane and have me fly you? I'll fly. Where do you want to go? Houston, Dallas. Let's go to New York. I'll fly. Let's make this really exciting. I'm going to build my own plane. Give me a couple weeks and we're, we're on it. We're, we'll take a trip. And you might sincerely believe that because you heard this great sermon this morning that I can do anything. But I can't. Right? And I might sincerely believe that I can do anything because I'm crazy, but I can't, right? I can't. Your confidence, your faith would be misplaced and I promise the outcome would be disastrous because sincerity does not save. Our faith must be placed in the proper object and this is an illustration of our salvation. God can save and only God can save. No one else can save but God. No one else can conquer your guilt and your shame and your fear and death but God. And if you place your confidence for eternal life or a great life now in anything other than God, you will be disappointed because sincerity does not save. God saves us. Through faith. God saves us when we put our confidence in Him because God has promised your debt of sin has been removed in Jesus. And I raised Him from the dead so that you can have eternal life. And His Spirit dwells inside of you so you can have power to conquer sin in your life. You can say no to sin and yes to me. And that is true. And when we put our faith in the right object, we have the confidence that we have life forever. But when God steps into your life and he begins to chip away at all of those false gods, all of those things that you've trusted in, maybe your good works to merit his favor. And he says, no, that will not earn it. You are not good enough. You are a sinner like everyone else. When God speaks that word to you, do you attempt to resurrect your God and say, no, I'll just try harder. Or do you turn and say, I believe. I will walk through that door of opportunity and I will believe. Let me encourage you, men and women. Freshmen, you may be here for the first time. Maybe you were raised in church your entire life and you've heard lots of God talk and lots of Bible stories and you've heard all this. Maybe you were even baptized. Maybe you were baptized 12 times. Maybe over and over again. Maybe you came to the front of the church and you joined a church and you went through all of the motions and you put money in the offering plate and you went to camp and you had great experiences all along. But there never came a moment when you said, 
There's nothing I can do for God. There's nothing good I offer up to God. What I need to do is receive something from God, and that's the gift of eternal life. And you come humbly before him, offering nothing but just receiving. Maybe God is having a moment for you, an intersection of lives and experiences in this moment where God is speaking to you and he's saying, just believe. Just believe in my son Jesus and he will remove your debt of sin forever and you have life. Maybe that's what God is calling you to this morning. Or maybe you're beginning to see that these false gods, you've trusted in Christ for eternal life, but there are gods that you're clinging to saying, that's gonna make me happy. You know, it's that boyfriend, it's that girlfriend, it's that job, it's, it's good health, it's, it's all of these things you're saying, that will make life full and rich and satisfying, and God is saying, nope, just me. And this is an opportunity for you to say, I, I relinquish those things, and I walk with God. See, all day long, the prophets of Baal ranted and raved, and they had an opportunity for Baal to step up and speak, and what happened? Silence, deadly, deadly silence. And then God spoke, and then God spoke. Chapter 18, verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been, tur- had been torn down. And he took 12 stones, representing the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. So with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and he cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, remember, this is in the, in the days of drought for three years. He said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. They did it a third time. And the water flowed around the altar and also filled the trench with the water. Elijah's setting God up to prove that he is alone, God. Verse 36 the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and he said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are, literally, you are the God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are the God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord is the God. The Lord, he is the God. This is one of the best moments in the entire Bible. (laughs) I just love this. It's not just the offering, but it's it's the water, it's the stones, it's the dust. I mean, there's, there's a crater. Boom, right? Not a cloud in the sky, but lightning falls. I love this event. I love this story. It's such a highlight, right? And then people stand up and they kill all the prophets of Baal. I mean, it's just an, it's an amazing victory. It's a wonderful story. I love reading this story. And it'd be great if the story ended right there, right? But it doesn't. Elijah, he, he is... He is thrilled. He is so fired up. He said, you know, I hear the sound of thunder. Things are shaking in here, right? People, things are just shaking. Ahab, I hear a storm coming. Well, there's no storm yet. We know there's not even a cloud in the sky yet. But Elijah has faith. And so he goes out and he prays and he prays. And pretty soon after praying seven times, 
the clouds begin to emerge. And he says, Ahab, you better run or you're going to get stuck. You better run back to Jezreel and you better have a feast before the Lord and praise him and worship him. Ahab hops in his chariot and begins to ride and Elijah runs out in front of him. And what's happening here is he is running with Elijah's, Ahab's people. In other words, the royal contingent is leaving in their chariots and on their horses and Elijah is running at the front of them. He's running with them back to the capital city to celebrate national revival. People, that's what's happening here, right? So he's at the front of that, representing the Lord and representing the people's hearts being turned back to the Lord. And he's with Ahab. He's telling him, go back, set up the feast, celebrate, worship the Lord. And he's going to run ahead and he gets into the city of Jezreel first. And Ahab, instead of going and setting up the feast, he turns the corner and he finds his wife. He said, Jezebel, you will not believe what happened. And she said, you know what? He killed all my prophets. He's dead. <sighs> Elijah runs. He's just had this incredible spiritual victory. And now he has plunged to the depths and he runs, fearing for his life. Chapter 19, verse 3. And he was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and he slept under a juniper tree. Behold, there was an angel touching him and he said to him, arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and he drank and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time, touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and he ate and he drank and he went in the strength of that meal, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. I want to help you visualize this a little bit. Okay? This confrontation began all the way in the north. Okay? It's, it's up in uh, the region of Samaria. There's a, a mountain ridge called the Carmel Range. He's on the top of that Mount Carmel and he runs. He hears that, uh, he sees that uh, Ahab has had his gods conquered and he runs. He runs with him to Jezreel. It's about a 20 mile run. Then he discovers, no, we're not going to have a meal and we're not going to worship. There's not national revival. Instead, my life is on the line. Jezebel's go- Jezebel is going to kill me. So he runs 20 miles to Jezreel and then he runs another 100 miles to Beersheba and he passes out. And God feeds him, and he falls asleep again. And God feeds him, and he goes another 40 days and 40 nights in the strength of that meal all the way down to Mount Sinai. That's another 200 miles. So 320 miles he has been running and walking, mostly through the desert. And he is absolutely and utterly depressed. <laughs> Can you imagine He is absolutely and utterly spent. And what he needs from God is for God to revive him and restore him again. So why is he down in the pit? Well, obviously, he's physically exhausted. He's physically exhausted. He also feels like a spiritual failure. Notice what he says here. 
chapter 19, end of verse 4. He says, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. The fathers he's speaking of are the prophets that went before him. He says, All of the other prophets before me failed, now I have failed. I am a failure. I'm a complete failure. And all of his world is collapsing in on him. His expectations have been crushed. He expected that when he obeyed God, God would produce what God had promised, this revival, and it didn't happen. He expected it to happen immediately, but it didn't happen immediately. In fact, after this incredible victory on top of the mountain, things turned, and he was a wanted man. That wasn't what he expected. Men and women, have you ever experienced that with God? Lord, I prayed and I asked you for something. I loved my spouse and I expected in obedience, having loved my spouse, that my spouse would love me back. I performed faithfully at my job and I expected I would get this promotion and I did not. I've tried to raise my kids well, biblically. I, even, I sent them to Sunday school and they still disobey. God, my expectations are not being met. God, I've taken care of my body and now my body is failing me. It's letting me down. These are not my expectations. All of Elijah's world is just crashing down upon him. He has a sense of inflated self-importance in this moment too. He says, God, I alone am left. It's just me. God, don't you realize that all of your plans depended upon me? (laughs) And I'm a failure. There's a sense of divine abandonment. God, where are you? But I want you to notice in in the depth of his despair and depression, he does not actually run away from God. He runs to God. He runs to Mount Horeb. What's the other name for Horeb? Sinai. He runs to the mountain where Moses met with God, where God delivered the law, where God came down in fire and smoke. It's the same mountain where Moses was tucked in the cleft of the rock and God passed by and showed his glory. It's the same rock where Moses was initially commanded, strike the rock and it will give water for the people. Provision. He doesn't run away from God in his despair. He runs toward God. He runs to God. And God provides for him in several ways. First, physical refreshment. God sends the angel to him and the angel doesn't say, I need to deliver to you a message from God. You're a lousy prophet. Would you get up and get busy again? No. He just, hey, Elijah, get up and eat. Elijah, get up and eat. And sometimes that's the most spiritual thing we can do, men and women. I saw a a freshman in the core in the 915 service already, and he was asleep. You'll find him asleep all over town. I remember at seminary uh, one time our chaplain said, the most spiritual thing you can do sometimes is to take a nap. Maybe you don't need to read another book on spiritual life and memorize a few more verses. What you need to do is rest and eat. And God knows that because God made you a physical being. And so God provides for him physical, physical refreshment. There's also a profound spiritual encounter that he has. Chapter 19. Verse 9. It says, Then he came there to the cave and he lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets. I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And God said to him, Go forth and stand on the mountain. Go out of the cave, Elijah, so we can talk. 
Behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle, and he went out, and he stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said again, second time, same words, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. What's going on here? This is, the, this is the mountain of the Lord. This is Sinai. This is where God has come before, and he has actually shaken the earth, and fire has come down. And I, I, I remember that scene as I read it in the um, book of, of Exodus, and I think, gosh, I wish I had been there. I wish I had been there for that moment to see the glory of God descending on the mountain. Boy, that would just shake my world so much that I'd never sin again if I could just have a moment like that. So God says, Elijah, come out of the cave, but he doesn't come out of the cave. He waits. And God's Glory begins to pass by and there's a a, a huge wind and rocks are flying around and then there's an earthquake and then there's fire. We're told God's not speaking to Elijah through that. Instead, God speaks to him just in a whisper. And we would like for God to always speak in dramatic ways, wouldn't we? We'd like to have our world just shaken. Then we go, yeah, if I could just see it, if I could just see your glory, if I could just see it once, then I wouldn't have to trust because faith would become sight. You know, sometimes God does speak in these ways. Sometimes he just shakes up life so much. It's just so obvious. But most of the time, how does God speak to us? He just whispers. And he's waiting for us just to be still enough to hear his voice. But instead, we're going and we're going and we're going and we're going and we don't stop just to listen. When God gives you the opportunity to stop, he calls you just to listen, do you stop? Or are you always going and pushing and feeling like, I must do more, I must earn the presence of the Lord, I must earn the favor of the Lord, and he's saying, no, just stop and be with me. God gives Elijah a third gift, and that is a renewed sense of calling. Elijah says to himself, and he says to God, I alone am left. It's just me. And God says, you're not alone. I've preserved 7,000. It's not a huge number, but there are 7,000 who have not bent the knee to Baal. And now I have work for you to do, Elijah. You've been refreshed. You've been restored. And I need you to get up because I'm at work. I'm at work on the international scene. So I want you to go and anoint a new king in Damascus. And I'm at work in the national scene. Ahab's going to die, and I want you to anoint a new king who will follow Ahab. And I'm at work in the spiritual realm. There's a man who's going to take your place. His name is Elisha. I want you to go anoint him. Toss your mantle upon him. Now get up and go. I'm at work, and there's work for you to be done, so go. And so what does Elijah do? He gets up and he goes, and he finds Elisha. He tosses the mantle on Elisha. What does Elisha do? He says, wait, first, I need to worship with my family. And he takes the oxen his source of income, and he burns them as an offering to the Lord, and he walks away. He walks away. God has opened up a door of opportunity, the intersection of, of Elijah's life with Elisha. And he says, follow me. 
as I follow the Lord. And he does. It's men and women. New semester, new opportunities. I promise you God is going to open up doors in front of you and he's going to say, will you follow me? Do you believe my way is best? Will you trust me? When circumstances do not seem favorable, when you, will you trust me with your life? Will you trust me with what you love best? Will you trust me when I say your false gods are lies? Just worship me. Will you trust me when I say follow and go? Those doors open in front of you. Will you say yes? So if we close, I'd like for us to take a few moments silently before the Lord, bow your heads. And as a new semester begins, say, God, Yes. Whatever you call me to do, whatever doors open in front of me from you, I will walk through in courage and confidence. I will not hesitate between two opinions, but I will follow. Just take a few moments silently before the Lord to recommit ourselves this semester. And Tim will come and close us. Father, you are worthy. Father, make us people who say yes. When you you challenge us to give all, you challenge us to set aside all of the foolish, false gods. When you challenge us to to step forward. When you call us to stop and just to rest and to be with you and to be strengthened. Father, let us say yes. Father, let us be people who learn to listen to the voice of your spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Let me encourage you. There's going to be some uh, families up here at front. If there's something on your heart that you would like uh, somebody to pray for you, maybe a decision you feel like God is challenging you to make this semester. Come up, let somebody pray with you. Also on your way out, opportunities to get connected in the foyer. Let's have a great week. We will see you next week to worship.